Welcome to Mintcast, episode 150. Boy, that is a such a nice round number. You'd think that uh, we would have had the, the good sense to have some kind of special program. Well, wait, we do have a special program tonight. Oh, God, I almost forgot. Anyway, today is February 25th in the year 2013, and we're recording live with the Mintcast, episode 150. I'm Rob. And with me on the podcast this week, of course, is my good buddy Scott. And boy, do we have something coming that's interesting tonight. I've been pumping this all night, so uh, now now it's really kind of now that the expectation. Can we yeah. deliver it? Can we deliver now it? Now the expectations yeah. so, are are at a ridiculous level that we can't possibly. So tell meet. us a little bit about yeah. yeah. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing this week, Scott. Well, can you even do that without kind of? spilling the beans prematurely as it no were? i'm not going to spill um, the beans but yeah i definitely a good chunk of this week was uh, you know dedicated to putting this episode together and and having some stuff and as you're aware rob you know you and i um talked to i don't know three we did more working together working through stuff this week i think than we've done on any episode to yep. date is that a fair yeah, that's what yeah, I thought. Yeah, no, that was good. And I think it, you know, it's going to it's going to pay dividends down the road and that's great, but um and I I think we have some some cool stuff and and we're going to uh, reintroduce an old friend, um not a person, but um something else. And so we've got some there's there's definitely some good stuff in there. I mean, outside of that hasn't um hasn't been a whole lot going on. I did uh I did have a chance to go and watch my my daughter's final performance at the uh, high school. Oh, that's in, right. That was yeah, Saturday. In the theater yeah. company, they did uh, Arthur Miller's The Crucible. And uh, uh, very... Very highbrow. Yeah, oh, you know, long play, very dramatic, um, oh, yeah. great story, uh, just very interesting stuff. And I knew the history, but um, it still fascinated me. The kids were, were wonderful. They did a great job. And, um, you know, I, I would recommend to anybody, if you live near a high school and you have a chance to go see high school theater, I, I would imagine it's oh, yeah. that way everywhere. These kids yeah. are so talented. It, it really is. We, we, we go, uh, my wife and I just love live theater. Um, and that mixed in with a very, very strong tendency to be cheap and not spend money means that we go to all the community theater and we go to all the high school musicals and all the high school plays and I am just constantly astounded by the level of quality that these kids, high school yeah. students, can bring to to the stage. It's really remarkable, I think. Yeah, so, it was something to see. It was, uh, it was sort of bittersweet because, I mean, they're doing one more play at the school this year, but my daughter uh, has decided she's not going to try out. She has just too much going on, and she has uh, testing and stuff that she has to do at the end of the year and, and such. But um, she, she really is uh, – uh, it was like – do you think she'll continue on in theater when she goes on? She, and, she and might, but she never or? took, you know, she's not trained. She just did it. It was something she enjoyed doing. And she's even said yeah. that, um, you know, she's not going to, she's not interested in a career in singing, um, no. be, you know, because it's something she does for fun. She's not interested in a career in art because it's something she does for fun and she wants to keep it that way. And so I would imagine yep. it'll be the same here. She may try out for some community theater and stuff, but it was, uh, when it was all done, she yeah. went, back into the theater when it was empty and um you know just had a moment for herself and stuff and so it's it's really you know we're oh, we're starting to realize how close it is to uh, to her being done with high school and, and heading off to college with high school moving yeah, on so. yeah she'll be married soon you'll have grandkids yeah. just like yeah, that just like yeah. that 
just like that. So, so that was my week. How about you? Well, I have been spending an awful lot of time on the road this week. Um, not ever away overnight, but uh, I was, um, I'm working on a project that's kind of over on the other side of town, so it's 50 miles each way. And then I was down to our plant in Victoria today, uh, beautiful Victoria, Texas, and came back through 40-mile-an-hour uh, crosswinds all the way back up the highway tonight. So it was an interesting, uh, interesting journey. So uh, let's see, got together with uh, one of the sets of grandkids uh, just for lunch and kind of a belated birthday party. So that was great fun just to, to see them. Uh, I, I do, by the way, for any of our listeners that are considering, you know, if you're kind of that, that age where you're uh, um, deciding between kids and grandkids, you should have grandkids. They're a lot more fun, I have to say. You know, I would choose them first any old day. And then uh, spent a bunch of time uh, getting partway through a couple of times uh, our uh, our main topic for tonight. Um, so I'm still not completely uh, organized. Um, lots to talk about, but uh, um, didn't quite get that done. So I'll be finishing that up again through the rest of the weekend. Uh, yeah, Bill uh, was pointing out in the chat earlier that uh, yeah, this is episode 150 of Mintcast. But this is actually episode 100 for us as the Mintcast team because I think it was 51 was the or episode 50 was the last episode that Charles and Rothgar did on a regular basis, and the the uh, new generation or the new team took over on episode 51. So that makes this our hundredth hundredth uh, go at this. So who'd have ever thunk it would go this long? The Linux and the Hamshack guys just had their 100th episode and uh, um, of course now on their 100th episode uh, one of them announced that he wasn't coming back on the podcast anymore <laughs> so you know that, that this is not and 50 was when Charles and Rothgar simultaneously announced they're not coming back on the podcast anymore so so what's your uh, big announcement tonight Rob so the big announcement tonight well uh, so well, before we get to that, later, uh, I guess we can, uh, we can, uh, yeah, I'm not leaving the podcast. Are you leaving the not podcast? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Well, let's get that out of the way right off the bat then. So you're stuck with us. Uh, you're not going to get rid of us that easily. So later on in the podcast, uh, we're going to be talking about something that we're obviously uh, pretty excited about. Um, we, uh, Scott figured out uh, some time back now um, how to how we've been struggling with uh, audio production mechanics and and how to both record and mix and live stream uh, the podcast each week and so Scott had figured out a little while ago uh, how to do that on a single box using artist X um, so we're gonna that's what we're going to talk about to, uh, tonight is uh, how to build a jack based podcasting server. Now, the neat little thing, uh, well, I'm going to leave the, the most interesting part of this uh, until we get into the main topic. Uh, but that's not all there is to it. So because this, that's not news, new news, right? We've been doing it for several weeks that way now on the Artist X server. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll have an in another interesting little wrinkle to bring uh, later on when we get into that. But before we get to the, uh, the main topic, Let's uh, go ahead and have a look at some of this week's news. 
So first out of the docket, first on the docket tonight is some uh, Linux Mint uh, news, and just so just post hot off the the uh, the Linux Mint blog. Uh, well, I guess yesterday, um, yesterday morning is the announcement that uh, Mint Debian 2013.03 RC is released. So this kind of came out of the blue at me. I wasn't really looking for uh, an RC or looking for a release, and that's probably because I've had my head in the sand and, and missed the whole deal. But um, in any case, they're, uh, they're rolling out a 2013.03 RC. Um, so what's in there? Well, it's Update Pack 6, which is kind of already running. Uh, on on my box anyway on the on my LMDE box Mate 1.4 Cinema 1.6 and then a bunch of um, installer improvements and and that sort of stuff so um, there's a the, in in the post there's a, an interesting uh, FAQ up there uh, talking about well let's see uh, is this compatible with Ubuntu well no it's not is it compatible with Debian yep completely uh, what and and it characterizes itself as a semi-rolling distribution. And I should have gone and looked up in our um, uh, history. We talked about rolling distros and semi-rolling distros and and fixed and all of this kind of uh, terminology that people uh, toss around. But uh, what, uh, and so they've given a definition and I think this matches reasonably well with what our definition of a semi-rolling distro um, it's not a full. It's not rolling like the, in the same way that Arch is a rolling distro, things like that. But it's a. Um, it runs off sort of in a in a pulsed way, if you will, off Debian testing, um, and so um, we get these update packs. I guess they're coming out. I don't know several times a year. Uh, this is update pack six since. Uh, in two years, so maybe three a year, they're they're popping out. Um, the good, new, the advantage, of course, of of LMDE is you don't ever have to reinstall the system, which is what attracted me to it uh, at first. The disadvantage is, well, it's not Ubuntu, and so to the extent that that really makes a difference to you. Um, for example, there's some things that are that don't work as well. The Steam stuff is set up for Ubuntu, and so you can make it work on Debian. Uh, but it's more complicated. So it's generally a more complicated distro. So in any case, it's nice to see the RC come out. And of course, for somebody who's run, the other interesting thing about these RCs is somebody who's running LMDE, like I'm running LMDE on this box that I'm podcasting on now. Um, I don't need this because I think there's nothing in this that I don't already have. What this is for is to avoid having to uh, dump, you know, if you install LMDE on a new box, you're going to have to download oh a gigabyte or so of updates, the ones that have had come since the the last uh, respin of the ISOs. So uh, this just saves you all that grief, lets you install something right up right up front. So and it lets them change the uh, the installer and and some some things like that. So uh, hopefully this will encourage more folks to. Uh, to use LMDE. I think, I'm, I'm foreshadowing a little bit here, but I think my days as an LMDE user may well be somewhat limited. Um, kind of depends, but I think I'm not going to be uh, running LMDE on this box much longer. 
So that's a topic for a little later on, perhaps, though. Yeah, and so um, one of the things that is in this announcement is the fact that uh, you can get ISOs uh, both in 32-bit and 64-bit for the Cinnamon and Mate desktops. And as you guys may recall, the discontinuation of the XFCE desktop for LMDE and the fact that there was never the creation of a KDE desktop sort of um, had the community sort of thinking about how they could approach that situation and what they could do. And so what happened is there is a Mint community member who was actually uh, went ahead and created the unofficial Linux Mint Debian Edition KDE spin. Uh, this gentleman's name is... Schoolje. I don't know if you heard that, but what that is, is that was an yep. MP3 recording of how you pronounce his voice because he's um, Dutch and really in the English language, there isn't a way to make the sound that you, the way you pronounce his, his name. So he actually was, was kind enough to send me that MP3. Uh, and so once again, his name is... Schoolje. And so he um, makes me think he's got that question. Before. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. And so he's it, yeah, Mark Turtles. Mark Turtles got it. Totally. Yeah, yeah, very yeah good. exactly. Yeah. Um, you've probably yeah. seen him in the he's active in the forums. Um, he does a lot of stuff out there. And actually, it's really interesting. He um, when he sent me his uh, the that MP3, he also sent me sort of an explanation of his name. Um, that the the um, uh, etym- et- uh, etymological explanation of his name is uh, a low-ranking domestic servant who performs menial kitchen tasks. <laughs> oh, so great. if you can view um, the, the fantastic work that he has done on um, the unofficial LMDE uh, KDE version as a menial kitchen task, then you are probably the target audience for a new distribution that he is uh, going to be coming out with called Solid XK. We're going to have a link in the show notes. Solid XK is actually should be coming out at the end of this week, and it is the official version of his new distro, which is based on uh, Linux Mint Debian Edition. He'll have both an XFCE um, desktop available and a KDE desktop available. And according to the notes in the um, out on that website, he's working closely with the Mint team, so there's no contention there. And, um, you know, he's working to, to sort of bring what he's been making uh, uh, available through the unofficial version to, um, to uh, the, community, the, the Linux community at large. So we're going to have a link in the, in the show notes. Yeah, and actually this, this could become our new Solus is being talked about in the um, in the chat window. And from that, by that, I don't mean to replace Solus OS, which we all know is a fantastic uh, distro that Ike Doherty uh, puts out, who has been heavily involved with the Linux Mint Debian edition in the past. Uh, now we have Solid from... Um, and that is... Uh, um, well, every time we mention Solid XK, uh, it'll be time to drink. So... Uh, there you have it. We'll have it. Like I say, we'll have a link in the show notes if this is something you're interested in. I think he already has some some alphas out there. Some of the work that he's done before. Uh, maybe there maybe there are RCs. I'm not sure, but uh, the notes on the website on the homepage say that he's going to release it uh, entirely uh, by about Friday of this week. So if that's something you're interested in, go get it. 
So is this this the only respin of LMDE? I haven't heard of an. Well, I guess. Well, Solus OS is not really a respin. It's a more a, a reinterpretation of the idea. Yeah, it's a different approach uh, and a different desktop. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he's coming at it. He's definitely coming at it a different way. In fact, you know, working with uh, the Partis folks and looking at at their installer, I think Ike's going to go in an entirely different direction. And so, Solid XK sounds more like LMDE with a KDE with KDE and XFCE does. Yeah, and I think you know it'd be interesting to see. Um, it's very likely that you know he'll differentiate it somewhat, but. Um, I haven't seen it. I didn't download or anything, so it'll be interesting to see once the final editions are out. I have to take a look, see if it's yeah. rebranded, see what kind of stuff is done there. So, um, well, and and will the update packs come out the same way? We, you know, what I haven't read enough about, uh, um, you know, how he's planning to do it. But is he going to treat LMDE as upstream? His upstream distro, for yeah. Example? And he does say that he's that would sound. He does like say it, that he's yeah. working with uh, with closely with the mint team you know there's cooperation there so it's not a uh, a contentious relationship which is good this is you know we need more and cooperative this, yeah this is a great way to do this kind of thing you know mint the mint team looked at at their whole you know the surface area of their whole product space if yep. you will and said you know we we just can't do justice to all this stuff that we've got and you know we know that there are people that that love and use the the KDE and XFC spins of LMD, but we just can't keep that going. And so they said, okay, we're not going to do that. And so here comes somebody along saying, okay, well, yeah, I agree. I think those are good things to do. And let me do that. And it sort of is spreading the labor out in a way that's different than if uh, Clem had said, okay, we're going to continue to do that. And I'm going to bring more and more developers in and build a bigger and bigger organization. And if, in a sense, it's sort of distributing both the the work to do in delivering a, a, a distro like this and distributing some of the design and thinking and planning that has to be done behind the scenes. Uh, I think it's a strong way to do this if it works Absolutely. Out. So, again, congratulations to oh, yeah. Yeah, way to go. and his, uh, his efforts here. Awesome. So our next story is actually an update. Uh, last week, we talked about the Python Foundation and their trademark dispute in Europe. And um, what we're going to do is include a link. Uh, Simon Phipps, who you may know, uh, he's been in the open source world for quite a while. He has a, a nice write-up on uh, InfoWorld about the situation. He goes into more depth. He actually spoke with the people at uh, P.O. Box Hosting, which is the people who owned uh, the Bieber.com and actually owned the uh, python.co.uk uh, domain and had sort of precipitated this whole this whole kerfuffle. Uh, and so he's he's got a lot more insight into the, the whole situation. And it sort of plays out that this, this organization, P.O. Box Hosting, is claiming that they didn't realize how big Python was in the open, you know, in the computer world. And they were taken aback by the the response. They also uh, sort of played the victim card because, as we spoke of last week, uh, people um, there were some emails that went their direction that were a little bit threatening. 
that uh, weren't necessarily as civil as uh, we would like, as the Python folks would like, you know, in terms of the representation of the community. There was also a lot of people who went out to look at what their website was, and it's very likely there's no proof that there was a DDoS attack on their servers, but their sites went down. Uh, under the crush. And you can imagine that if people were just going out to look and you, you know, you're averaging, I don't know how many hits a day, and suddenly there's, you know, 30,000, it very likely is going to take you offline. So, um, so mock turtle for solid XK, that's going to be with a Y. So it's going to be S O L Y D X K. And anyways, back to the Simon Phipps story. So, uh, Simon did a great write up. We'll have a link to that. There was also a um, an update from the folks at the Python Foundation, and they they came out to say that um, they have received an overwhelming response from the community uh, in their appeal for sort of trademark proofing. Uh, they have scans of articles, book covers, conference T-shirts, and brochures, and uh, then they also again emphasize that they want people to be civil, that any hacktivism or threats against uh, the PO Box hosting. Uh, will hurt the the Python community in the long run, and that they are actually in good faith negotiations right now with PO Box hosting. So there's potential that we're going to have a um, a positive outcome from this this situation. We'll see. We'll keep you informed as to how that plays out. But it it does look uh, it does look like there things are moving in a positive direction. So we'll have the links in the show notes. It was a great explanation, a great uh, way to flesh out that story and. Um, I just wanted to include that in this week's uh, news section. Yeah, it just it really doesn't pay to overreact when these things happen, and that's you know the the downside if if there is one to kind of this um, this this groundswell crowdsourcing mentality that we have is that uh, sometimes the reaction that that the mass of us all acting together comes up with is is not as appropriate as it, as it could be and and to their credit i hope p.o box hosting really is is not being disingenuous and is really is saying oh we had no idea that it was this big a deal that's kind of hard to understand how they could not know that it that python was such a big deal but i suppose uh, so next story comes from the odds and ends department and um is one that uh, kind of is near and dear to, to both of our hearts in this, in the sense that uh, it's, a, it's a news item uh, from, uh, where did we get this from? Uh, TechCrunch uh, saying, remember WebOS, and I do very well. I have my WebOS device sitting here right beside me. Well, uh, LG has in, acquired WebOS from HP. Uh, so that's the good news. The bad news is, well, they're just going to stick it in smart TVs. So um, it's not, at least the good news is not dead. But so LG acquired software licenses and the team working on WebOS. And that's got to be, I don't know how big a team that is, but it's not real big. Uh, And they're only planning to put it in their smart TVs, not in the phones. Uh, And so, you know, this is like the third or fourth reincarnation of Palm's operating system. Um, so LG says it's going to be in, in uh, smart TVs, but it, uh, as TechCrunch points out, it, it's a pretty good idea for them to get an independent mobile operating system. Um, this is becoming a very, very heavyweight world. 
with you know Apple with with uh, iOS and Samsung and Google are are just stomping all over everybody everybody in terms of the use of Android uh, and then Microsoft with uh, uh, Windows 8 and and flavors so it's good to have you know LG can't really afford to jump on any of those bandwagons it's good to have a a fallback for them um the uh let me think i'm scanning down here to say to where there was something i thought that's not really right but of course it is that says uh, the touchpad talking about hp's touchpad but the touchpad was a failure well it was only a failure to hp it was a tremendous boon to me uh, it's uh, i don't know if you guys have been, been able to to get hold of one uh, ever but if you get a chance to the thing runs android like a champ and it it has produced a, a wonderful uh, Android tablet at a fraction of the cost. So um, the tablet was good hardware. HP kind of messed it up. And they actually tried to, well, I don't know that it's malicious or malice or incompetent, but they, they really messed over WebOS as well because they didn't really get rid of it. They just kind of, well, they open sourced it and then said, well, okay, I don't know what you guys are doing, going to do with this. So it's open source, but... There's no hardware for it to run on, and, and the open source thing, uh, yeah, that won't run on the touchpad, touchpad, by the way. So, anyway, if you're a WebOS fan, uh, and I know Rothgar was a big WebOS fan, um, LG is your your horse, so climb on, and and you got it. Yeah, Rob. Uh, now, before speaking, you, be, yeah, before go you ahead. move on, I got to tell you, when I when I read the story, I had just one thought. What's I'm not dead. What? Nothing to use, you know, but I'm not dead. Yeah. He said he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. He isn't. Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. I'm getting better. Yeah, that's it. That's a... I'm getting better. That was my thought. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. Yeah, we'll have to pull that out the next time somebody buys uh, WebOS. So, speaking of uh, HP tablets that aren't dead... Um, now that's kind of a weak transition, but so they HP kills the touchpad for I'm not sure quite what reason. But here on Engadget uh, today, yesterday is an announcement: HP Slate Seven Android Tablet rocks beats, $169 price tag due out in April. So you know here, and this was announced at the Mobile World Congress. HP's uh, out in Barcelona, talking up the new Slate 7, a jelly bean sporting tablet, 1 gigahertz dual-core ARM processor, and a 7-inch display, which is what the whole world is going towards now. Uh, front and rear-facing cameras, uh, you know, it's... Uh, so they're going to try again. So uh, my advice on this uh, HP tablet, um, I'm going to go with the trend here and recommend... Don't buy it in the first two weeks it's out. Wait until you can get it for $55 after they discontinue it. So that's, that'd be my you know, advice. It's, it's a compelling piece of hardware. That's the interesting thing. You, you know, sure honestly, yeah. and we've talked about this with the touchpad, the touchpad's a, it's a big piece of hardware. It's sort of iPad 1, uh, and it wouldn't even, yep. I think the, the first iPad, first generation iPad would actually probably be considered superior hardware to the, the touchpad itself. And there were a number of yes. reasons why it failed. And, and as you know, it hit the market at like $500, which was crazy. That's what was wrong now, with it. Yeah, that was Now, um, Amazon has helped redefine the price point, the selling point, the value point for 
particularly for seven inch tablets and at 169 dollars for a for a major manufacturer's product with as it said in the headlines there it has beats audio in it it's got a seven inch display and and the cameras and all i i'm yet i've yet to see the processor and and really the megapixels and such on those uh the uh, the resolution on the screen and, and such but at 169 dollars this has potential to undercut a lot of the players in the market and hit a price point that you typically see the Chinese knockoffs at. So, you know, right. So, because what's the what's an iPad mini? Oh, uh, they're in the four, five hundred. A minimum of two ninety nine, I would say, and maybe, I yeah, maybe, maybe higher, higher than, than that. that. Yeah, for they go up. So, yeah. one one more interesting thing coming out of the we're hearing a lot of stuff coming out of the Mobile World uh, Congress in Barcelona there. And Bill and I made a quick note of it in the uh, in the chat room, and we're not going to actually have a story on it, but we're starting to see supposedly up to 18 carriers are lining up behind uh, the uh, Mozilla Firefox OS that's going to be on phones. Uh, they're seeing there's actually some carriers that are looking at Tizen, and uh, you we heard about the Ubuntu phone, and there's supposed to be carriers who are starting to line up behind that, the Ubuntu Touch. So there's a bunch of different um stuff coming out of that that conference and it, it it's very likely or there's a lot of potential that we're gonna you know six months from now uh eight months from now we're gonna have an entirely different um environment for for mobile well that in my mind this is not the problem with mobile the, the mobile problem is not a hardware problem the problem with mobile right now is the data plans it's the carriers that are the problem, not the hardware manufacturers. There's lots of really awesome hardware floating around. Yeah. But the cost of the data plans and, and the network bandwidth is just ridiculous for most of these devices. So what they really what I think they really need to do to to bust this thing wide open is to to sell a even a a two or three hundred dollar tablet sized device with a ten dollar a month data plan that would support the the use of that thing that's what's going to i think really blow the market open is when the data plans come into to line with where they i guess where i'd like to see them i don't know where they should be but that's the thing that's holding me back i think you know people love these things but they they have to be connected to really be uh of tremendous use i yeah. think so so uh Moving right along to uh, our last story in the or our, our final story in the odds and ends department, um, the uh, the guys over at Make Use of and and I don't know if, uh, how many of you uh, ever go to this site, but uh, dot com uh, I find is just a fascinating site. Um, I don't go to all their stuff, and some of their stuff is meh. I don't know. But uh, they've got up there a uh, an unofficial, uh, yet another unofficial Raspberry Pi manual. And so um, lots and lots of, of good information in here. Uh, the thing I like about the manual um, is that it, it doesn't assume that you know all about everything about the whole Raspberry Pi world. and Because and, if you're not a... a a tiny computer kind of person, you know, you don't, you haven't heard of things like the Arduinos and and other tiny phones and or tiny computers, if you will. So um, you might not, you know, be all that up on the the Raspberry Pi world. And so it's nice that they kind of go into some of the background. It's really quite a, a nicely written um, a piece that sort of tells you 
uh, you know, what you can do with it. Gives you some good ideas on cases and and some ideas around, you know, how to get some of the different operating systems installed and what to do with it and uh, and that sort of stuff. So uh, it, it's kind of a neat, uh, neat little manual, if you will, um, that tells you sort of how to use it, you know, and and gives you some ideas on, on what you can do with it. They've got this Kindle hack in there, too, that I've seen before um, where you can use the you can connect the Pi to a Kindle and you can use the Kindle uh, the e-ink display as a display for the Pi which I thought was yeah that's kind of an interesting idea I don't know that I want to hack my uh, Kindle apart like that you have to unlock it and I'm not just too I'm not ready to give up on my Kindle yet as a device to, to unlock it but yeah but uh, you could go get a $69 Kindle and you know for a hundred bucks here you got your Pi and your Kindle yeah. and you can do your thing there yeah, yeah, that's true enough. I'm, what I really want to do with mine, uh, and I've just actually started, the course started yesterday. i got to get going on it. But there's a course uh, on uh, Coursera on uh, natural language processing that uh, is a statistical natural language processing um, graduate course that I'm going to take. And I want to use the Pi as the platform to do that natural language processing stuff. So... Um, what I've what I've always wanted to do with this Pi is, is completely frivolous, but I want to take this thing and and wire it up to Twitter, and so that you can talk to it and it'll talk back to you. And that's what I'm I'm going to try and do with it. But so uh, keep your eye out for a Twitter handle near you that uh, is actually talking to my Raspberry Pi. So Rob, before we hop into the news or into the main topic and hop out of the news. I, I do have a confession to make. I gotta admit something. While uh, you were out of town, i i snuck into I snuck didn't. into your garage. You I did. Oh, I did. God. So, well, here, let me just. I thought stuff looked like it was. Let me just around. let me just play this for you. Howdy, this here is Scott. I snuck out into Gramps' garage while he was napping. Normally, he doesn't like me playing with his tools and such, and he might be mad if he catches me. But I have a great topic that I wanted to share with all of you, so I figured it was worth the risk. Pull up a chair and we'll get started. Now, as you're probably aware, UEFI and Secure Boot have been in the headlines a lot lately, and mostly for the wrong reasons. Just last week, there were stories of new computers getting bricked just because people tried to install an operating system on there. UEFI and Secure Boot were created to replace BIOS, the basic input-output system that traces its roots all the way back to 1976 and the CPM operating system. Being 40 years old, BIOS has a number of security flaws and is tied to the x86 computer architecture, so there's definitely a need to come up with something better. The question is, if UEFI and Secure Boot are that answer. But there's another option, and it's gaining popularity. It's called Core Boot. Originally envisioned as Linux on a flash chip, it was first called Linux BIOS. The name was changed as it became clear that additional functionality would need to be coded onto the chip to properly boot and prepare a computer for its operating system. Core Boot is written mostly in C, unlike BIOS, which is almost all assembly code. 
This means that there is a larger development community with the skills to work on it, and because it's open source and licensed under the GPL, anyone can play with it. But first off, let's talk a little bit about the history of Coreboot. The project started at the Los Alamos National Laboratory in 1999. Some of the original authors included Ronald Minnick, Eric Biederman, Ollie Lowe, and Stefan Renauer. They wanted a fast-loading BIOS that didn't have a bunch of legacy baggage, and they wanted to develop a way for an operating system to gain control of a cluster node from the moment it was powered on. Specialists at the lab continue to work and support Coreboot today. There are other big names involved in the development of Coreboot, including AMD and the motherboard manufacturers MSI, Gigabyte, and Tyan, although some reports say that Tyan has discontinued its Coreboot support. That's okay, I prefer Gigabyte for my motherboards anyways. Arguably, the biggest name supporting Coreboot today is Google. In fact, this past week, Google announced that its new high-end Chromebook, Pixel, will be running Coreboot when it ships in April. I mentioned Stefan Renauer as one of the original authors of Coreboot, and he continues to work on it today as an employee of Google. In fact, he is the most prolific committer of code to the project, with almost three times the number of commits as the next closest contributor. Now you may be saying to yourself, Scott, this all sounds great. You had me at open source. I may be no Richard Stallman, but I do love me some freedom and want to replace the evil proprietary legacy BIOS or laptop-bricking, Microsoft-loving UEFI on my system. So where can I get Coreboot? Well, okay, hold on. Coreboot has to be ported to every chipset that it's targeted to run on. And since Intel hasn't been a great supporter up till now, those of you running AMD systems have a better chance of having a supported system. If you go out to www.coreboot.org, you can find a list of supported chipsets and motherboards. For those of you who don't have a supportive system, just wait. I bet with Google's involvement, we're going to hear a lot more about Coreboot in the future. So that's all we're going to talk about today. I'm going to get out of here before Gramps wakes up and catches me. Swing by the blog, leave a word or two in the comments, but don't tell Gramps I was in here without him. Whoops, need to keep it down. Music for Gramps Garage, provided by Leo Harmazin, from his album, The Next Level. This track is called, I've Got Your Remedy. You can check out all of Leo's music on jumendo.com. I've got your remedy, baby. I know exactly what you should do. You're beautifully broken. I got the cure for you. I'll make it a house call Let's see what the doctor can do So, I realize now that saw. I... Not the saw. You did the I, saw. I probably should ask your permission. <laughs> Next time I will. <laughs> but... Oh, dear. Oh, well, that was yeah. good. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah re- I'll really. I have to get out there and put things back where they belong. You know. Yeah, you probably will. And, you know, it's the. We're not even going to cover the story because we're a family friendly podcast, but you guys probably heard how Linus went off on Matthew Garrett and some other Red Hat developers uh, with regards to a pull request they had in the kernel for some more secure boot stuff. And, uh, if uh, if you're somebody, it's it's not safe for work, um, and it's 
it's more over the top than some of the other things we've seen uh, seen Linus do. But there is a, uh, a mailing list thread that went back and forth. Uh, it, you know, Linus basically saying, "Keep this stuff out of the kernel. You can do what you want, but do it in user land." And um, you know, it's very timely. So uh, I'm really looking forward to. Uh, hopefully, Google can really drive development of, of Core Boot and kind of push this uh, this uh, open source um, you know booting uh, mechanism into into the mainstream and, and hopefully we'll see see more and more of it. So, is this something that um, is user installable? Can you flash this on a regular BIOS on a, a chip? So, you if you did, if you go out to that website www.coreboot.org, there's about 250 supported motherboards and chipsets. Um, you know, it has to be ported to the North Bridge and the South Bridge, and, um, and yep. there are some there are some uh, systems that uh, and laptops even that, but a lot of it's older. You're not going to see. Um, the newer stuff and AMD has been a big supporter and, and so, uh, an AMD has pledged to make all their future systems, uh, core boot compatible. So, uh, you know, you can look at, uh, you can look at it there and see if, if you have a system. In, in fact, I have a laptop that's supposed to have so-so compatibility. Um, I'm trying to decide whether I'm, I want to risk it or if I, you know, cause it, it's possible that it would brick it. So. You'd brick the thing if you don't get the BIOS flash yep. quite right. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Hmm. Interesting stuff. Yeah. So I guess that's going to do it for the news. And uh, now we're going to move on uh, into our main topic. So if you're a regular um, listener, and uh, particularly for the folks who regularly join us uh, in the chat room on Monday nights, uh, you will already know that uh, we've been uh, struggling over the time that we've been doing uh, live streaming to work out the details of the hardware and software uh, that's necessary to do that well. And so we've kind of, we had cobbled together some stuff for a while, and just recently, um, Scott had worked out and finally sat down and said, okay, this is enough of this foolishness. Let's, let me figure out how to do this. And had put together a scheme to allow basically the, the whole podcast to be um, produced and delivered in real time, uh, sort of streaming and recording at the same time. And then we'd still do some post-production afterwards, but it's a lot less with this rig than it was before. So that's what we're going to talk about. And we've got a, a, a special uh, rider to this that is sort of late breaking news that we're going to get to right at the end of the, the, or the discussion on, on how to build a Jack-based podcasting server. So we're going to come to something right at the end. So you want to stick around for that. But I'm going to toss this over firmly into Scott's lap to kind of go through and explain uh, what it was that that he built and what we've been using for the last few weeks and as we've been streaming. So probably the best place to start is is at the start. And for those of you who who weren't aware, when we started to do the live stream back in episode 100, so we've been doing it for 50 episodes in about a year now. We had, in essence, we had a mechanical setup. We actually ha- had to use two boxes to do it and had to loop 
the the machine the output back in through or the input in through the output uh, of one machine using uh, an RCA cable and hooking it to both um, both outputs or both jacks there on on the the sound card of the of the box. And it was sort of a, a kludge, and it, like I say, you had to have two machines, and I was the only one who was in a position to do that of myself, Rob, and James. And so when I wasn't on the podcast, it would create problems. And so James did some work, uh, found it, uh, sort of crafted a solution, but if anybody who's a longtime listener will remember, we would have trouble getting started at the top of the hour, anywhere close to the top of the hour, the bottom of the hour, 45 minutes into the show, because um, it was pretty brittle, his setup, and things would, would break all the time. And so we sort of envisioned the, the holy grail was to be able to use jack, jack audio. And, um, you know, we've talked about audio before. We had our audio episode some time ago and talked about jack. But jack actually gives you amazing abilities on on a machine to do virtual routing you can route inputs to outputs from different uh audio components and it's very functional if you're a musician and you want to take advantage of uh, your computer and use that to produce music jack gives you all sorts of facilities to do that in our case it was you know our needs were pretty simple we wanted to be able to uh, inject music into the live stream. Um, we wanted to be able to record that as well, but and we also wanted to capture our mumble conversations, put them into the live stream, and capture those in a recording as well. So there was a little bit of routing that you know needs there, and some things that we wanted to do. Every time that I would approach Jack, I could get certain pieces stood up, others I could never get stood up. I could never make the pulse audio to Jack Bridge work correctly. And so in the end, uh, we'd always, I'd always sort of throw my hands up and say, well, maybe this is beyond me. Maybe I, it's not something that I'm capable of. And, and we just sort of powered on. And as Rob said, so probably, I don't know, 90 days ago, 120 days ago, I finally decided this, you know, we're going to make this work and came across a couple of distributions. Uh, first, uh, came across one distribution that actually made it possible and that's called Artist X. And we've talked about this one before. Artist X is a, a big distribution it's based on big in terms of size not big in terms of uh, market share or anything along those ways but it, it it you have to burn it to a dvd because it takes a monolithic approach to to software um you know i sort of have a note here that says kitchen sink because uh when you install artist x which is which is a 1204 ubuntu 1204 based uh distro that has uh, italian orange origins um when you install it you get all sorts of stuff for multimedia creation, uh, content creation. So this could be uh, video, uh, graphics, and and audio, and uh, photography as well. And so you get basically everything that you can imagine is included, and it comes with the distro. So it's huge, takes a while to install, and sort of has this monolithic approach. They do have some some good things in there. They give you the ability to install a low latency kernel to, and that helps improve audio performance. If you can get a real time kernel, that would be that's the best solution. Um, but uh, particularly when you're producing music, it's not as uh, imperative when you're doing stuff like a podcast. But uh, you can get a low latency kernel in in Art Artist and that helps. And um, that that's been. Uh, what we've been using for the past several months has been an, been an artist X install. 
a couple of, I don't know, it's probably a month and a half ago, I came across another distro that uh, looked very promising, saw some good stuff on it. And uh, honestly, I installed it in a couple of places, but we never used it as our streaming podcast box. But it's called Open Artist. And the Open Artist is actually in, in an alpha state right now. It's, it's still, uh, they haven't really said we're, we're even a release candidate or a beta. They, call, they consider it alpha, but they're actually on their sixth incarnation. So they might be, um, maybe they're getting cold feet when they think about the big time of going to dot one zero or whatever the case may be. But this is also an Ubuntu 12.04 based uh, distribution. And they take a slightly different approach to how they distribute the software. They have two different spins uh, of the, the ISO that you can go get. One is a monolithic spin uh, like Artist X, where all the software is on there. And a lot of it is very similar software, um, but everything is on there. And then they also give you uh, what they call their, ba- their base install, which is more of an a la carte type of uh, situation, but the interesting thing is everything, all the software shows up in the menus. It's just not installed on the box. When you click on it, it actually kicks a script, an apt get script that actually goes in the background and installs the software for you. So you can get a much cleaner install. And I imagine you could go back in later and clean up your, your menus to get stuff out that you didn't want, but you get a much cleaner install on your box. You can have a much lighter install on your box. Uh, by only installing the software that you really need. They also have scripts for doing uh, kernel updates uh, and kernel installs. So again, you can get a low latency kernel or a real-time kernel. Same way, you basically just go into a menu, you click on it, and it will go out and do that install. So um, it's actually a really interesting project. And if I didn't come across um, our final solution, the solution that we're, we're actually working with and we're going to talk about in just a second, I very likely would have look, taken a much closer look at ArtistX and our um, open artist and, and seen if that was something that we could work uh, as a podcasting box. One of, the, one of the goals that we had all along was that I would go ahead and work with Rob uh, to get him set up so he could have a, the exact same setup that I had so that if I was traveling, not unlike I did last year, um, or anything like that, he would be able to host the podcast, host the live stream, and um, you know do the recordings and everything like that. And I could, you know, if I had the opportunity on the road, could just dial in and participate. Or um, you know, potentially uh, some of our our hosts from the past, you know, if James was available, or if uh, uh, Charles or um, uh, Harrison or anybody else was available, they could come on the podcast and, and Rob could host it in that sense. So that's that's the goal we were working towards is to be able to use a single box and, and to be able to do this. So we, we, in talking amongst ourselves, always felt that we're Mintcast. We should really strive to be able to produce the show um, on on a Mint-based box that we, we owed that to the, you know, the Mint team, we talk about this all the time. They do tremendous work. It's a tremendous distro. It really is. When you look at what they're able to do and, and how professional they are about it and the, the quality of the distribution, it, it's really, um, really, really well done. And, it, I, you know, I felt and Rob felt the same way that we, we needed to get to where we were working on a Mint box if that was at all possible. And so with a little bit of trial and error and a, and a bunch of work this past week, Uh, we've actually been able to make that happen.
So there were a couple of, of wrinkles because we've made a run at this a couple of times yes. in the past to try and figure out, you know, how do we get jacked in there as the audio connection kit and we're using Audacity to record and we're live streaming through Dark Ice and there's just a lot of parts that you have to get all kind of connected together and jack is the glue that holds them together. But there were some some disconnects that, that we couldn't ever really figure out. And and part of it is that that Jack is not really all that straightforward to work with. It it's very powerful, unlike a lot of very powerful software. It's um, it does it it has a lot of capability. So you have to figure out what it is you want it to do. Um, and then the other piece of software, there, there were several pieces of software that we used that didn't seem to work at all with Jack. And so that that kind of is where we always got stopped in the past was we just couldn't get all of our all of our necessary parts to connect. Yeah, together. one of the things that you have with Jack is if if a uh, application is Jack aware, and a lot of good audio applications are Jack aware. If it's Jack aware, it's it's pretty simple to to make it work and to to play with your inputs and outputs and route stuff and 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 leverage that software and and get you know put it to use if an application is not jack aware it's a whole different ball game and you either need to have a level of um, programming expertise where you can build jack support into an application or you somebody else has to have done it for you and so that was it that was probably the biggest stumbling block was the pieces of our our um workflow the applications that we use in our workflow that weren't jack aware and so and other people do that a lot of you know you listen there have been several uh, podcasts and and presentations done uh, that that i think both of us have gone and watched and listened to that talk about how they've set up their podcasting rig and a lot of them seem to use an external mixer or a a computer that's got you know extra capability extra inputs and outputs mostly their external mixers and external recording devices is what people seem to be using and and our objective was we wanted to take a single computer and have everything on that computer that we needed to manage record and stream a podcast yep. and so that was the objective and i haven't seen anybody describe a device like that um, anywhere and I'd be very interested to to hear from people who have done that you know maybe what we're doing is people are going to look at it and say oh well that's obvious you know anybody could have figured that out for us it wasn't but and I haven't seen a lot of of talk about these kinds of applications so so that's what I think makes so it let's novel. talk about where we landed and how we made this happen so the first thing was that um, well the, the key to it all is a a suite of applications and this is not just applications. There's, they have distro ISOs. They have repositories. They have artwork. They have a bunch of stuff. It's, it's a site called KX Studios. And they're out at kxstudio.sourceforge.net. KX Studios is actually the work, primarily the work of one individual. Um, he goes by Falk TX. And he's also, his real name is uh, Philippe uh, Kaleo. I'm probably pronouncing his last name incorrectly, but um, this gentleman, Falk TX, is 
he's just does some incredible work and has really um, done us all a great service. If you're somebody who's interested in audio production, be it music, be it spoken word, whatever the case, and you want to do it on a Linux box, uh, KX Studios uh, just has some fantastic stuff up there. So, like I said before, they have full Ubuntu-based live DVDs, so you can go out and get those. Uh, they also have Netboot uh, ISOs that are very small, about 20, um, 20 megs or so, um, and they actually do a Netboot, and then you install everything across the wire if you have a live Internet connection. You can get source and uh, binaries and custom applications. And then they also have, like I say, they have a bunch of custom applications that they've put together that are mainly around um, Jack's port and, and interacting with Jack, but they make, for me, they make life very easy and uh, they, they work great. So um, KX Studios was, was the key. Up on their site, they have great documentation as well to, to how you can go about attempting to build a box based on um, an Ubuntu distribution. So one of the things that we found with, through a little trial and error is that they haven't quite got to Ubuntu 12.10 or Mint 14 support all across the board. So the target, uh, the base distro that I ended up using was Mint 13 XFCE. And uh, they support either KDE or XFCE up at, um, at KX Studios. I thought XFCE would be a lighter desktop and would be a better, better uh, base for, for mine. So that's what I went with. And um, in the end, as we talked about in, with, in terms of applications that have, um, that have Jack support, for us, the, the, key, the, the key to the entire project was Mumble. So as you guys are probably aware, Rob and I use Mumble uh, in a uh, Skype type of fashion. Uh, there's a Mumble server that actually the Linux basic folks um, host for us. Door-to-door Geek, if you're familiar with uh, Linux Basics or Podnuts, um, Door-to-door Geek hosts the server and allows us to uh, basically use space on it. And this is a Mumble server. We have Mumble clients on our box and we connect to it. Well, Mumble does not support Jack. It does not have Jack support in it out of the box. And so uh, TX actually wrote a patch that can be compiled into Mumble and that gives it Jack support. The only place that you can get a compiled binary for this, to my knowledge right now, is in the KX Studio repos. And they don't exist in the Quantal Quetzal repos, which would be your 1210 or your Mint 14. But they do exist in the Precise Pangolin repos, which obviously is Mint 13 or Ubuntu 12.04. So... Uh, Getting once I had that mumble, once we were able to get that mumble piece with Jack support, now things start to fall in place. Um, and so there's a bunch of stuff that you end up doing when you install the KX Studio pieces. It's it's not just simply the applications. Um, there's a base. They have a bunch of uh, meta packages that you can put together for audio production and some other pieces. And honestly, I probably could slim the box down a little bit, but I wanted to make sure I got all the special sauce that that uh, the KX Studio folks put into this. And, you know, this box is basically dedicated to podcasting, and I do a little bit of research and some other stuff on it, but, um, you know, it, I could afford the space, and I wanted to make sure I got everything in there. So we go, we went ahead and got all our stuff in there, and we were able to install a low-latency kernel. Uh, I actually did try and install their real-time kernel. They have a real-time kernel available as well. Unfortunately, with Mint 13, I got uh, video issues when I did that. The... 
um, the NVIDIA drivers would not work uh, with the real-time kernel, and I started getting 800 by 600 resolution, which is, um, you know, is a non-starter for me. So had to drop back to the low-latency kernel. And as uh, we've been recording on this box tonight, um, the low-latency kernel has been hanging in there pretty well, and uh, I only have a few what they call X runs, which are sort of errors that you will get. Um, I only have a few of those as we've been recording the session. So, so again, the low-latency kernel is holding up well under the load that we have here uh, doing doing a podcast. So um, real quick, besides Mumble, some of the real important pieces for us in our workflow are uh, Audacity. We each record our tracks in Audacity, so that had to run, and it absolutely does. It's a, it's a port audio um, back end, but you get uh, you can connect it to your jack system. It's real easy to do. Uh, you just select it as the, the jack audio connection kit in the, in the Audacity interface. Um, we also use um, Dark Ice, and that's how we do the um, the live streaming out to you guys. And Dark Ice, to get Dark Ice to do jack support, it's as simple as one line in the configuration file, and boom, it works. So that, that was a really easy one. And then we use, uh, we actually use a, a product that um, the KX Studio folks wrote called Claudia. And if you've ever used Jack, um, some of the default... <clears throat> Applications that come with it, there's one called Patch Bay. And what this does is it allows you to do your routing. You literally can route from an input, uh, the output of one uh, device to the input of another. So, for example, I route from my microphone into um, another application called Internet DJ, which is how we do the music and, um, and route some other stuff into, into the stream. I also route into the input of Mumble, from the output of Mumble, I route to the stream, and I also route uh, to, to the output in my headphone so I can hear Rob. Uh, but I can draw all these. I just drag and drop to uh, lines between these different entities that show up in the Claudia screen, and it's as simple as that. So I can do stuff like um, I could take my microphone out of the live stream and take the output of Mumble out of the live stream, and Rob and I could talk about how much uh, Bill Amai irritates us when he... Uh, comes on the stream at, at 5.30 when I'm trying to just get the music up. But that's not true, so we really wouldn't say that. Uh, I never, would never say, say bad thing things like about that. Bill and I. In fact, I, I, I would chastise you uh, if you said but, that. But we could do it without Bill and I hearing us because of the way Jack works. Um, you know, there's a bunch of different things we can do in there. So Claudia is uh, is a patch bay on steroids. I can I can save all my connections. I can save all the applications that are open and then next week when I come in at 5.30 and Copycat's waiting for me to turn on the stream, all I have to do is start that studio and everything comes up. All those applications come up. Dark Ice comes up. The stream comes up. Now I can just start playing music and, and entertaining you guys as we get ready for the episode. So um, Claudia is a great one. And then we also use a product, that another application that was written by the KX Studio folks called Cadence. And Cadence is a way... Uh, is an application for configuring Jack. You can tell it the sample rate that you want. You tell it what your input device is. So Rob and I both use a Blue Snowball uh, microphones. They sometimes show up where they, they show up in different spots on the device as a device. Sometimes they're device number two. Sometimes they're 2.0. Uh, sometimes you know they they move around a little bit. And Cadence can help you configure that correctly so that 
you have a, a proper hardware capture device, you have a proper output device, and, and then Jack can help you with all the routing between them. So in Cadence, you can you can start and stop Jack, you can restart it, and you can actually set up some of the bridges that we need to do a little bit more work to understand better, but things like the Pulse Audio uh, to Jack bridge, the Alsa to Jack bridge, the Alsa MIDI bridge um, to Jack. And so... Um, lots of stuff in Cadence that you can, uh, has lots of functionality. In fact, we know, we recognize, we're just scratching the surface here, but we're learning as we go. And, and I think about what I know now and the lessons that I've learned as we've gotten to this point. And we've been pretty fortunate because we haven't, we haven't uh, forced a lot of those lessons on you guys yet, or hopefully never. You know, we sort of learned them as in between shows and then been able to get the shows on the air and go forward. So, um, you know, again, being able to use, we're, I'm really happy because t today is the first episode here, episode 100, that we are doing this live streaming and capturing this for the released podcast that comes out later in the week, all on a Mint machine, 100% Mint. And, um, you know, that's really where I'd like to be. I mean, obviously, we are we are a podcast that talks about all different uh, distros in the Linux world, but uh, we are Mint-based and, and I want, you know, I... I think that the the quality of the distro is such that we should be able to do this, and and it's great that we've been able to do it. So, um, uh, you know, that's that's about that's about all I've got there, Rob. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about with relationships? I mean, I know I also you know mentioned that uh, Rob and I were, did a bunch of work this week where he uh, um, built. Well, we started with an Artist Xbox, didn't we, Rob? With you, right? Started with an Artist Xbox and. I've got a kind of an offhand box that I've been using. I think I've talked about it before. This is the one with, with the 120 gig drive divided into six slices, and and uh, it's an older machine. Um, and um, I uh, have ArtisX installed in one of the the drives on that, and so I thought, okay, well, I'll just use this as as the podcasting server. And so we got together this week, and and Scott was kind of walking me through the steps in building that up into a, a podcast server and what I what we quickly figured out um, was that the machine just wasn't going to be beefy enough to do it so that was a, a a revelation I guess to me that in hindsight is probably fairly obvious but the the task of managing and routing all this audio streaming around your box is not a uh, a trivial bit of processing and so you need a fairly beefy uh, machine to do it not I, I don't know I haven't looked at this and fiddled with it enough to know exactly what it was that was bogging it down but this this machine had a number of of issues it's got a an older uh, single core processor it's only got two gigs of memory um, that sort of stuff so I, it we, we kind of ran into trouble there um, and then uh, got the notion of, uh, you know, trying to, to, well, what I was going to do then was to, to add a partition to my uh, main LMDE box and install Artisex over there uh, and try and do it there. Uh, and we talked right at the end about, well, you know, we really ought to try and do this on, on Mint and why can't we do that? And kind of went and, and looked at, at starting to do that so and then once and scott pretty quickly figured that out uh and so then i started down the path of okay well I'm, i need to to back up all the data on this box and i'm going to actually replace the lmde install with a mint 13 xfce 
podcasting uh, installs. So, um, so and I'm about halfway through doing that. I ran into a few hardware problems and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, we also talked about trying to get rid of dark ice, and we haven't kind of figured that out yet quite, how to do that. Um, theoretically, um, the IDJC, which is the Internet DJ console, um, it will drive a um, stream out as well. Uh, but we haven't figured out quite how to um, how to make that all work with it so that we can hear the things we need to hear, not hear the things we don't want to hear, and do all the routing as well. So that may uh, may not work. I just noticed Mark Turtle has put something in the chat here. Do you think a podcast-oriented turnkey virtual box image would be useful? And that is another thing that Scott and I talked about because uh, I said, well, why don't we just put this thing in a virtual machine and we'll run it, uh, you know, inside another box. Um, we may be, well, our, the initial reaction was it's going to just bog down terribly because of the performance requirements. You know, the, we're trying to run um, a, a low latency and ideally a real-time kernel on this. And so I don't know what would happen if we tried to do that inside uh, a virtual box. Now, perhaps if you did it on KVM, um, and so you you got down, you know, you ran two virtual boxes on a on a KVM hosted um, box. If you could get down close enough to the hardware, uh, that might be be worthwhile. And and yeah, for certainly for anybody doing a podcast, if we could put together. A um, you know a, a canned um, turnkey virtual box image. I'll bet a lot of podcasters would pick that up, particularly if it was relatively straightforward to to kind of do what what Scott's really pe- spent the last six months sort of figuring out how to do and and how to make work right. Um, I'll bet a number of people would do that because I think I think really what most people do on a podcast is they either use Skype or an external mixer or the, if it's a one person thing then everything is done in post production the the complicated thing that we're trying to do is the live streaming part of it and without a full audio production studio that that's kind of hard to do yeah i think bill's got a good point there too that with that vm solution you know obviously they they do some emulation of audio hardware both in virtual box and in uh things like uh what is it vmware and so those their audio setup might not be um as bill says might not be up to the task yeah that's why something like kvm i'm wondering about you know if you could get down to something where the hypervisor's sitting right on the hardware and you're installing you know linux kernels on top of that that's real close to the hardware and so i wonder if you might be able to get kind of closer access to it that way and still the problem with with putting another you know with dual or triple booting this lmde box is you can't you know you're you're having to to boot into a different environment all the time what i'd really like to be able to do is to have the podcasting environment there and working and then also not have to reboot in and out of that environment just fire up a virtual box that would be ideal but uh you, you might need a fairly beefy box to be able to do that. Yep. So the um, last thing we were going to talk about was kind of routing and how we do the live show production. So once we got this box all up, um, 
the the nice thing about Claudia is that you just start it up and you say, okay, load and start the studio. And it starts all the programs up, connects everything all together, and you're basically left with something that's pretty close to 99% where you need it to be to be able to just start uh, podcasting. It's, it's, you know, the trick with, uh, with these programs is to get the audio routed in the right directions because Mumble, for example, normally it's set up to take input from a microphone, send it out to um, the the rest of the people who are on the mumble server and then route their audio back to the the person who's speaking so that you can hear everybody else but not yourself now of course for the live streaming we need to take everybody else you take all that audio coming out of mumble and then mix it with both the music that we're going to play and the the um, microphone that that is being used locally and any other input audio input streams and combine all that stuff together and send it out to the uh, uh, to the stream so that when you're listening live you can hear everything we continue to be able to record individually and so we get a high quality isolated track that the track that I'm recording for example just has my voice on it that makes it really easy to fix little glitches and oopses where um, you know some uh, like when the the corner of the ceiling fell down a few minutes ago in my room, you guys didn't hear that at all, because we just take it out of my audio stream and you never hear it. Actually, it didn't fall down, but things like that have happened in the past. Uh, you'll get somebody on and they're, you know, they're typing away, banging on the keyboard when somebody else is talking. Well, that's easy to take out when the tracks are separated. I'm rambling. This is you, really you are rambling related, but these are all the things we're trying to get. Sort of no, and it's yeah. it's just it's really nice because I mean, as being the producer here, I need for well, you think about the music. I need you to be able to hear the music so you can time out when you're talking. I want the people in the live yep. stream to be able to hear the music because I'm trying to present a show to them, and it's nice I can route the music as well to my Audacity recording so that when we put together the released podcast, it's already there, and we just have to line the tracks up and take out the ceiling falling out bits. And so Jack allows me to do that because I can take the output from IDJC and put it to all those places, as well as my headphones so that I can hear it as well. So things like that become really convenient uh, when you're using Jack and you're trying to do stuff like that. So it it really helps us to do sort of a multifunctional uh, production here and solve a bunch of problems in in one fell swoop. So really, it's it's sort of a godsend. Uh, the people who worked on Jack did a fantastic job in creating something. And we're using, we're only touching the tip of the iceberg here with the stuff that we're doing. If you're a musician and you're not using Jack, you definitely want to take a look at it. There's just a tremendous amount of software and applications that you can use if you want to hook a uh, a keyboard up to this, if you want to, if you've got a mic and you want to record your guitar things like that. There's just some incredible stuff that you can use using Jack and using different effects and things like that, that are, that are all free software, all included on these distros that we talked about, whether you go the artist X route, um, uh, open artist, uh, use KX studios on, a, on an Ubuntu based distro, or even things that we haven't even talked about, like Ubuntu studio and some others that are out there, AV Linux, some other ones. So, uh, Great stuff. Uh, really, um, it's been a lot of fun getting to this point and being able to do it uh, at this level. We're going to be at the point where Rob's going to be able to host in the next uh, 
uh, next week or so. Next week or yeah, so. And as, yeah, as David mentions yeah. in the uh, in the chat room, yeah, we're doing a little bit of rambling, but it's live rambling, and you guys are able to hear it. So, That's right, and it's all being know, recorded. Th- through the magic yeah. of Jack. Through the magic of Jack, indeed. Yeah. Well, the other thing I think that, that I'll probably try and do as part of building the bo- my box out is – uh, take the notes that that you've made, Scott, and and put together um, kind of a comprehensive description from bare metal, if you will, as to how do you start from a computer with nothing on it and get to a machine that you can can use the way that we're using it to do a podcast. Because I don't think there's a resource like that on the web anywhere. So that might be something that people would would find useful. We'll get it uh, get it yep. put up there. So I think. That is going to wrap it for our uh, our main topic, and then we're all at the to see. So I guess I'm supposed to do the first feedback story. Sorry about that. Um, well, that's quite all right. You know, they, there are some things that Jack can't do. There are, yep. The, it, yeah. Well, actually, if I recorded that earlier, <laughs> I could have just hit the play thing. So that's right. So if you're listening to, if you actually hear this in the recorded podcast, it's because we chose not to that's fix right. this, even though. We so, could. so we heard uh, last week. We heard from uh, Sid Thirty Two, who wrote in about uh, and gave us a suggestion about a little application. Uh, you can look in the show comments for episode 149. Uh, it's a program uh, program called XT2 Read, which actually helps you read uh, EXT drives. And uh, as you guys may recall, I nuked uh, my machine at the LAN party that I went to a couple weeks ago. And if I had had that, I probably could have avoided nuking those uh, partitions. But in the end, it all worked out well because now we have this Mint 13 uh, podcasting box. Yeah, awesome. Uh, so Robert wrote in and said, uh, thank you for another good episode of Mintcast. Like other listeners that provide feedback re- recommending software, I need to make an amendment to my recommendation for TDIA to SQL. Uh, T-E-D-I-A to SQL. Uh, it's partially broken and no longer supported by its developer. Fortunately, another project has taken the lead and provides the means to generate SQL from a, a DIA a diagram file. Dia is probably how it's pronounced. Uh, the Perl name for the project is parse colon colon dia colon colon SQL, and it's in CPAN. So, you know, I read all that out. I have no idea what that means. But if you're a Perl programmer, you know exactly what that means. Uh, Ubuntu provides a package for this utility under the name of libparse-dia-sql-perl. Command line utility for libparse-dia-sql-perl is parse dia sql and has similar syntax to to dia to sql uh, parse dia sql supports more databases um, it also generate uh, supports generating sql for sql light 3 databases which is one of the embedded ones that we talked about there uh, a little while back uh, to learn more about how to bring how to build a dia diagram for use with parse dia sql uh, you'll still need to use the documentation, and he gives us a link. Uh, let's see, this was from uh, the web, so you can probably check this comment out. And he's got a link there for the uh, Tadaya to SQL, uh, which is over on tigris.org. So that's uh, 
Uh, the one of the issues with open source software, I think, uh, Robert, is, is exactly this: is you, you find it's a great tool, and uh, well, you know, it just gets dropped or the original person moves on. But it's always good that somebody picks it up. Um, so uh, Christopher Patrick wrote in uh, and said, Rob, if you want Steam, you can run it on LMDE, and he gives a, a link there. Uh, to uh, a place on GitHub, which I have not uh, gone out and looked at just yet. So I need to go find that because I do, in fact, want to run uh, Steam on LMDE. So um, he's also linked to the um, unofficial Raspberry Pi manual. Uh, is this, um, let's see, this is no, a it's different the same one. one than it's the same one. It's the same these one are we actually, talked he, about earlier in Christopher the Christopher was yeah. busy this week. He these are these three um, links that he sent us were all different uh, comments that he he wrote in at different points in time. So uh, really appreciate him. Yeah, busy I mean, fellow. if he wants to do yeah. some show research for us, I could probably. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, we can yeah, take so. all that stuff. And so he, uh, we were talking. Was it last week? We were talking about macros in in Open was. Office. Or was that? Yeah, so we had concluded, Bill and I and I had concluded that such a thing was not possible. Um, Christopher says, au contraire, it is in fact possible, and uh, puts a, a link uh, in the, the his comment, which uh, I'll put in the show notes as well, uh, correcting uh, our uh, our faux pas. Yeah, and Bill and I said yeah, uh, that, that he knew... Um, Oh, he says uh, he found that recording macros was a regular feature in OpenOffice 3.2 in Ubuntu 10.04. Um, so it's been been there for a while. Um, it's one of those features that they keep carefully, carefully hidden so that uh, small children don't harm themselves. I think that's what the, what the deal is there. So Joe Resington wrote in to let us know uh, that... Um, he said, hi, guys, just thought I'd send you a quick e email to let you know that we don't pronounce the letter H with an H and a H in at the beginning in the UK. So I had mentioned last week that uh, uh, people in the UK yeah, pronounce it H. H they, they don't H, pronounce it But H. they don't. And he, fin right, he con yeah. uh, continues, some frankly thick people pronounce it incorrectly like that, but educated people most certainly do not. Keep up the good work, and I think the show really works with just the two of you. Regards, Joe. And uh, that being said, we still miss James, and uh, so, we do miss but, uh, James. Yeah. Uh, thanks for the kind words. Well, in this this business about H and H, this is a a uh, uh, what do they call that? A, a typing uh, or it's a uh, stereotyping thing. This is people in the states. Um, I think would would say lots of, you know, the quintessential English accent would have a H in it. And so I'm glad that Joe wrote in and said, well, taint so, you know, that just... Yeah, I was going to say, everybody works, in Texas guys. says yeehaw too, so... Well, that actually is true, and, and y'all is kind of in every sentence, and uh, uh, those... Y'all heard about the big old wreck on the freeway. That That's kind of normal Texas talk around here, but... Uh, anyway, so Dave Morris writes in, and says, hi guys, I've just been listening to episode 148 of Mintcast and wanted to thank you for it. Well, you're welcome. Uh, while I'm at, at it, I also wanted to thank you for episode 144 as a twofer, yeah. I've been listening to the podcast for nearly a year now and I enjoy it a lot. I've especially enjoyed the in-depth technical sections you've been doing. Uh, Greb Sadok, brilliantly done. 
I, I actually know my way around these three tools pretty well, but I was fascinated by the way you explained them. Uh, that was all Scott, I think. Um, as well as giving an excellent overview of regular expressions. I've done two Hacker Public Radio episodes so far and was planning one, possibly more, unsaid, but now I'm having second thoughts after such a tour de force. <laughs> well, I hope that doesn't discourage you from doing it. Um, base the data. I really enjoyed the database section. I like the idea of starting with LibreOffice Base, which I have looked at but never used in earnest. I also liked your explanation of the term relational database. You guys are good at this stuff. Oh, and by the way, that's the first time I've heard anyone use the word Tyro for a while. <laughs> I wonder if I used I think that was me. I wonder if I used it correctly. Uh, anyway, when I went when I first went looking for a free database many years ago, I evaluated MySQL, but found it didn't support foreign keys or stored procedures at that time. So I used PostgreSQL, which had both and a whole lot more, and I've been using it uh, ever since. My preferred scripting language is Perl. I find it very straightforward to access PostgreSQL databases from it. So to finish it, please continue with the in-depth stuff. I find these episodes particularly fascinating. All the best, Dave. So we also heard from uh, Kansas Penguin, who wrote in to say, since you guys occasionally mention Arch Linux, I thought I'd let you know that I recently returned to Mint after running Arch for over a year. I have nothing bad to say about Arch, but my own interests have changed. One reason I installed Arch in the first place was to learn more about Linux, and I did. But the downside of Arch is that the whole system is only as good as you make it. The base system was solid. All my main applications worked fine. But there were small things that didn't work. Scanning, for example. I had installed the same simple scan program that Mint uses, and it didn't work for me. This wasn't a big issue because I don't scan very often. I'm perfectly capable of finding and fixing problems like this. I just didn't want to. Want to. After a year and some on Arch, I realized I'm more interested now in getting my stuff done than in tinkering with my system. I decided to go back to a distro where all the pieces were already in place. I'm currently running Mint 14 with Cinnamon, and everything works well. And uh, I, I think that's that's a great, um, you know, Arch is a great distro, and you hear fantastic things about it. But you guys uh, probably remember I did some similar exercises with Linux from scratch and Gen 2 in standing up systems based on on, on those uh those distros and uh you know my sentiments were basically the same they i learned a lot it was a great thing to do uh but at the end of the day i went back to a box where everything just kind of worked um out of the box for the most part move forward my recollection of your descriptions of that is you put in an enormous amount of effort learned a huge amount about linux and ended up with a system that almost yeah basically basically almost worked yeah and i could i yeah, it was pretty close. And but I can not quite. I can totally identify with this idea of, you know, well now I need to scan. Well if I want to scan right now, my scanner works. I've got a multifunction thing behind me that Mint picked right up on, boom, I'm ready to go. But with my yeah. Gen two distro or my Linux from scratch, I've got to do some other stuff to make that work. Linux Linux from scratch I basically gave up when I started doing wireless. You know, and I had to do some WPA supplicant uh, type yeah. stuff and you know, granted, Arch has all that stuff down, and you, it, it's a lot easier with Arch. And Arch is fantastic if you want to be on the edge because the stuff is the stuff's there. Um, somebody was mentioning in uh, in on uh, one of the Mint blogs today how uh, the the next version of Cinnamon is already in the Arch distros, and Clem came back and said, "Yeah, that's not stable. You can go with it if you want, but you know, but it's already there for Arch and Arch users. So fantastic stuff there, but." 
you better be willing to do some tinkering uh, if to, to get certain stuff work and, to work. And people, some people, you know, say that, hey, that's geek cred right there. And it, and it absolutely is. But then, you know, so yeah. when I work all day and I'm struggling with vendors and trying to get circuits uh, activated and, and I come home and I just want to, you know, I just want to do some stuff. I want to move some pictures around. I want to, you know, surf the web. I want to scan some stuff. I, you know, I don't, I don't want to spend two hours trying to figure that stuff out. So um, I can absolutely yeah, identify it, with Kansas Penguin. And I really appreciate that note because I, I think that's right on. Um, again, if people want to learn, Arch Linux is a great place to do it. I was going to say, in a sense, you know, Arch users are the people you go to to fix things when they don't work yep. on your distro. Because they know. The, the, if you're a regular Arch user, then you know how your system works and you know how to fix stuff. Um, if you're, and, and this is, you know, not everybody's like this, but for me running Mint, don't come to me and ask me why your stuff doesn't work because I'm just happy that my <laughs> stuff works. So... So our final com our feedback comes in from George from Tulsa on the Google Plus groups, which uh, I noticed the other day we are still ahead of, uh, of Mr. Bushy and the Going Linux guys. So I'm I'm proud of our gang. Let's keep keep it going there. Uh, the only thing I can say about Google Plus communities is if they if the guys at Going Linux ever notice that we care, it'll be all over. Very likely, just, they'll run us into the ground. But uh, so far, we've been sneaking under the radar. They've mentioned it a couple of times, uh, but uh, we haven't attracted their attention yet. So um, I'm I'm quite happy about that. But uh, in any case, George from Tulsa writes in, says compliments for reasons I can't quite identify. Show number one forty nine was very good. Flow of topics, host interaction, sound quality, practice makes perfect. Anyway, nicely done. Um, well, thanks, George. I'd add to that uh, dumb luck. Uh, yeah, maybe yeah, maybe not. But something like yep. that, though. <laughs> anyway, so that's going to uh, going to close us out for feedback. We uh, we very much enjoy getting feedback from you guys, and it comes in from a wide variety of sources, um, either on the website itself uh, or. In email, we try and read the the email ones that uh, that come out. Uh, Google Plus, the community's been great, uh, so so that has has all. Uh, it, it's we it, when you're sitting on this side of the microphone, just blathering on. Um, uh, it's very um, uh, heartening when you have feedback from people that you find out you know these guys are actually listening. That's amazing. Makes uh, Makes everything worth it on this side. So we love to get your feedback. So our website of the week is the Penguin Producer, www.penguinproducer.com. And so the Penguin Producer is a website that's dedicated to the advancement of Linux as a viable media production platform. And I think if you've learned one thing from our podcast tonight, it is that you can make uh, media on Linux. Um, and you can can do it in the way you want to do it. So whether you want to make movies or podcasts or music or whether it's intended to be recorded or steamed live, um, you can uh, find tips, tricks, tutorials, tool documentation on the Penguin Producer website that will help you bring your uh, bring on your a game in Linux. So actually, um, I think that's a game, not a game. Yeah, you oh bring your yeah. a game. Come on, bring to your Linux. bring I your thought, a game. Tonight, bring your, bring your a, a game, game tonight, yeah, a game, Rob. No, I don't know. So, 
Yeah, I'm bringing my a game tonight. It's a Canadian expression. You'll get over it in a little bit. So, yeah, so they've got a bunch of information on here. And I don't know how much you've you dug into this. as a. have been here before looking for stuff on how to get Jack to work and, and how to record things in Audacity and how to use Audacity for different things. We looked at Ardor a little bit, or I did at least, early on in the podcast uh, trying to figure, because it looked like, Boy, this was just exactly what we wanted. It turned out it was way too hard for me to figure out. Uh, but I spent uh, time uh, coming uh, in here looking at, uh, at their instructions. So if you're interested at all in, in uh, producing media on Linux, this is a great place yep, to Yep, and they have a look. podcast as well. They don't put out a ton of episodes, but they do have a podcast. So great site. So our tip of the podcast actually is one we teased out last week. Uh, hat tip goes to Beardy Jesse for sending this in. And what it is, is it's a way that you can set up to have autocomplete bash commands from your history. What you end up doing is adding some lines to your uh, .input RC file that sits in your home directory. And if you don't have one of these, you can create it and put these commands in. We'll have a link we're, I'm not going to explain the whole thing because it, we're going to have a link in the show notes out to the site. It's actually sitting out on Linux for Dummies, which um, has just a few posts on it. I think it was envisioned as being something more than than it actually came about. But Or maybe the, the gentleman who's doing it is just sort of uh, pacing himself. But one of his posts is, again, this autocomplete bash commands from history. And you end up putting these lines into your input RC file, or you create your input RC file and put these lines in. And what it'll do is it'll allow you to, all you have to do is say you had a cat command in your history um, or a number of different cat commands. You just type cat, hit the up arrow, and it'll go right to the, the last time that you had used a cat command. You can hit it a couple of times to find the one that you want to run, and then bang, hit, hit enter. So it's a way to move through your history much quicker with just a few keywords. And so a uh, great little tip. Um, maybe it'll make your life easier. Maybe you won't use it, but it's it's there. And I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's it seems, as Bill says in the chat room, it seems like an easier way uh, than using Control-R, which we've talked about in the past as a way to search through. Control-R is a way to search through your history for the last time you ran a particular command. Um, the intuitive thing that you want to do is you want to hit that up arrow because that's what you're doing to recall commands anyway. So being able to type in part of it and then hit up arrow that's just what you would think of if you didn't think yep. of of what. So to again, do, thanks know. to uh, Beardy yeah. Jesse for that. Very cool, and so we do have a podcast announcement, and uh, this was uh, actually was around last week, and and I missed it uh, in last week's episode, and we had missed it. It's actually from the episode prior to that, but in any case, John Taylor called us out on uh, Google Plus for not announcing the Southeast Linux Fest um, in our events section. So we'll throw it in there tonight. So the 2013 Southeast Linux Fest is going to be held June 7th to 9th in 2013 in Charlotte, North Carolina at the Blake Hotel. And so we'll put a link in the show notes to the uh, Southeast Linux Fest uh, website and if any of you are in the southeast part of the United States or who are willing to drop the coin to be there the week of June uh, 7th to 9th this would be a great way to uh, to spend that weekend so we'll throw that in there and I think that's going to bring us close to the end of a podcast did we uh, did we run out of stuff to talk uh, about? probably not but we probably should stop talking for now we 
probably should. So why don't you use that fancy podcasting setup you've got there and, and send us uh, play, some Play us out? Music. I can play us out. Just play us out, like Jack. Can you do that? This. This has been another episode of Midcast. The show notes for this episode are at www.midcast.org. You can send us email at midcast at midcast.org or leave voicemail at plus one eight three two five one four two two seven eight. That's eight three two five one four cast. You can find more information on Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Midcast and Linux Mint on Twitter at Midcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco and Oscar for the podcast music, and thanks for listening to this episode of Midcast. <laughs>